The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. Thrilled that you could join us because we have a phenomenal guest today. I'm so excited to have him on. Our guest is Jigger Shaw. He is the founder of one of the most successful solar companies uh, that that you will ever read about, and that's Sun Edison. I'm sure most of you have heard of it. In addition to that, after he sold Sun Edison, he was the CEO of the Carbon War Room, which is a uh, an organization. We'll ask him to to discuss a little bit more. But um, if you have heard of Rich. Richard Branson, which he's into a little bit of everything, that's one of his uh, projects as well. And so I'm really excited to talk to Jigger. He's got a brand new book called Creating Climate Wealth, Unlocking the Impact Economy. And one of the things that's great about the book is that it really speaks to all of us and how we can all participate in some of the greatest business opportunities uh, of the of our lifetimes by creating climate solution companies. And I'm really Really excited to have Jigger tell us all about that. So, welcome to Go Green Radio, Jigger. Glad to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Go Illini. Yeah, Oski Wow Wow. <laughs> we're both, for those of you who are wondering what that's all about, um, we're both University of Illinois alums. So, uh, it's funny, Jigger, you know, I, I, didn't realize that you were an alum of the University of Illinois until I was, you know, preparing for the show. And it's amazing how many of my guests over the years just serendipitously have been U of I alums. I don't know what's going on there, something in the water, but uh, we pump out a lot of green leaders. So, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, I loved reading your brand new book, Creating Climate Wealth. And I've had a lot of authors on this show. And, you know, writing a book is no small task. It's a labor of love. And oftentimes when I'm talking to authors, I ask them who their audience, you know, when they were going through this arduous task of writing a book, who their audience was that they had in mind that kept driving them to get their message out. And I'm wondering who you were seeing, envisioning in your mind as the audience for your book as you were writing it. Are you are you thinking about business school students, venture capitalists, public policy makers? Who is it that you're hoping to influence the most with this book? Uh, you know, that's a great question. I, I did a lot of writing before, you know, op- op-eds and things like that for newspapers. And generally when you're writing for that audience, it's a policymaker. Mm-hmm. And when I started mentoring uh, new entrepreneurs and others, what I realized was some of the basic things around entrepreneurship had sort of been lost. That people thought that as long as you're doing good things in the world, you don't actually have to have a product that makes a profit. You don't actually have to make sure that you're making a good return on investment for investors, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, you know, I really need to put all these lessons in a book around how you can do well by doing good. 
but not really, you know, just moving away from all of the good lessons around basic entrepreneurship, but incorporating that in the process of making change in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could see this this book being used as part of a curriculum uh, for some of the business schools that offer entrepreneurial courses. I, I think that would be a great complement to some of the curriculum I've seen in my own daughter's college curriculum on the subject. Um, yeah, you know, the, the thing is about that is I have to say is I started with the entrepreneurs, but you're exactly right. There's a whole bunch of students who are looking to graduate from college today were saying this is where they want to actually start their careers. And when I kept going, what I realized was that there were a lot of lessons in here for the investors themselves. A lot of the investors are the ones who are not using the rigorous process that they need to use to actually judge these entrepreneurs and teach them the lessons through that rigor. And then the last group that has really latched onto the book recently are public policymakers. They're just fascinated by the fact that we've attracted $100 billion a year now into solar investing. And they're trying to figure out how you get that much money into energy efficiency and waste to energy and other sources of uh, clean energy. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I want to dive into in a little bit because I think there is a significant role for public policymakers in all of this, um, as well as, of course, uh, the VCs, the the banks themselves, and of course the entrepreneurs who are going to put the put it all into action. But let's back up for just one moment and talk about climate change itself. Um, you know, your company, Sun Edison, obviously it was a great solution uh, for some of the problems that are causing climate change, some of the things that we know we'll need to change about the way that we receive energy in the future. Um, but personally, what is it about climate change that concerns you the most? You know, the thing for me is that I'm not – as sort of, you know, as excited um, or inspired through the climate change lens as I am through sort of the resource efficiency lens. When you think about climate change and its worst impacts, there are things like massive droughts that are occurring around the world that are due to changes in climate, but also due to huge amounts of water being used by coal plants Mm -hmm. um, in local communities. I'm also very concerned about our food miles and the fact that, you know, I am actually getting food from California here in New York mm-hmm. and that food, 70% of what I'm paying for is transportation. Only 30% of what I'm paying for is actually going to the farmer. And so you start to think about all of the problems we have and you think climate change just brings it all into one tight bow where you're saying actually you're displacing people around the world. You you're, uh, have issues with uh, sea level rise where you know, many uh, people who've invested hard-earned dollars into real estate are going to lose their investments and lose their homes. Um, but all of that together to me really inspires me to do good in the world. Well, and it does create quite a business opportunity for people who can take a look at the landscape, predict or or look at studies that predict some of the impacts of climate change and come up with, you know, whether it's products, services or what have you to help address those those climate change ramifications. But do you think that 
all of this is just a, a nifty, perfectly timed, great business opportunity for clean tech companies? Or do you really believe that companies who invest themselves in climate change solutions can actually um, either arrest or mitigate the coming impacts of climate change? Well, I'm not a scientist, and so I, I don't know this as specifically as I should. I mean, I'm an engineer. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, from my perspective, look, I think climate change is real. Um, I do think that the large majority of it was caused by unsustainable business practices over the last 100 years. Um, so I don't think this is something that really we've been building up to for the last 1,000 years. I think it's really just – it's in the last 100 years, we've decided as capitalists that we can – use resources provided by nature for free without figuring out what the cost of that resource is and paying our fair share to return it back to its natural state. Mm -hmm. And so we're now in the situation where we've used our atmosphere as a dumping ground for excess CO2 and pollutants. We've used our water as a dumping ground for heavy metals. We've used um, all sorts of the nature's ecosystems, including our oceans now, um, as a dumping ground. And a lot of these ecosystems are saying, look, you know, we're crying uncle. We can no longer support being used as, you know, the dumping ground for your um, industrial policies. You now have to actually figure out how to do these things in a way that completes the circle, as Bill McDonough would say, you know, go cradle to cradle. Right. You know, a lot of people realize that, you know, part of what has created all this excess carbon in the atmosphere is uh, finite fossil fuels. And even when you say finite, um, you know, sometimes it doesn't sink in with everybody that truly at some point these fossil fuels, coal and oil and gas, will run out. And it could be in the span of, at least in some of those, you know, fuels, the number of generations you can actually count on one hand. <laughs> and so when you look at the solar industry and the infinite power and energy that it could provide, it seems like a no-brainer that we should be transitioning quickly from finite energy resources to infinite resources. And yet we've had some stinkers in the in the industry that have kind of spoiled uh, the notion of big investment. In the last couple of years, uh, Solyndra has become the one-word answer to why investment in clean tech, particularly with public dollars, is risky. And for those of us who are laymen to the solar industry, I'd love for you to talk to us about the differences between Solyndra and some of the other epic fails in the solar industry and Sun Edison and why the company that you founded was so successful and ha- is continuing to be so successful while others have experienced such failure? What's the difference? Well, you know, it's a great question. Let me start a little bit with the finite resources first. I think what's happened in the last 14 years or so, in 1999, we were paying a dollar a gallon for gasoline. Today, we're paying almost $4 a gallon for gasoline, and the oil prices are up 5x to $100 a barrel. So I don't think we're going to run out of oil. I think we're going to run out of cost-effective oil. Mm -hmm. And so I think things are just going to keep getting more expensive. And that's why solutions like solar or other climate change solutions are so critical because natural gas is cheap now, but it was just, you know, 2008 when it was um, about four times more expensive than we're paying today. So we can easily return back to those prices and, in fact, the Japanese and the Europeans are still paying those very high prices for natural gas. So 
that's why pursuing these are so important because, you know, these types of commodities suck extraordinary amount of money out of our economy, mostly from uh, poor and middle class uh, families. And mm-hmm. so, so when, when, you know, they haven't had real income growth in the past 14 years, um, their household budgets are also under stress because their electricity bills are higher and their uh, oil bills are higher. And so that's why these solutions matter. I think when you think about the Solyndra versus Sun Edison um, comparison, Solyndra is a, was a technology company that thought they had a better mousetrap to make a solar panel, whereas Sun Edison was a business model innovation company that could easily use Solyndra's panels, SunTech's panels, SunTower's panels, and other manufacturers uh, in the solar panel space. And so what Sun Edison did was helped consumers uh, with the popularization of a no-money-down strategy with SolarCity is doing and Sungevity and others. So we were the first to really come out with that model for the solar industry and to perfect it and to get banks to go along with it and to set up the rules for why and how banks would invest in it. And then we were to share those rules with Solyndra, you know, SunPower, Suniva, First Solar, and others to explain to them what a bankable panel is, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. And that's how we were able to succeed. And you're seeing now that level of business model innovation uh, taking off. So when you look at the Global Clean Tech 100 report that just came out last week with the list of the 100 hottest clean tech companies in the, in the world, the vast majority of the growth in those companies came from business model innovation as opposed to technology innovation. And that's one of the major themes in the book is that, you know, we spent billions of dollars in the 1970s in response to the Arab oil crisis around innovation, R&D, basic things to be able to get the solutions that we have today. Today we have over a thousand solutions in local food, water efficiency, electricity generation like solar that are ready for prime time and everyone thinks that these solutions are not ready for prime time because they just haven't sold themselves. But you can imagine when you sign up for electricity at your brand new house that you built with a home builder, you don't have to pay the local utility company for your share of the electric utility plant, like the coal plant or the nuclear plant to power your house. Right. So, so when I, when I say to you, well, you have to pay 10 years of electricity bills up front to put solar on your roof. You can imagine a lot of people saying, I love solar, but not that much. <laughs> so it was a business model innovation that really has caused solar to become the multi-billion dollar industry it is today, not a technology innovation. And that's where the government really failed to see what was up. So when they first came into office, the Obama administration, they saw this pending you know, application for Solyndra under the Bush administration and said, oh, we could push money out the door this way. And what they didn't realize is that Technology innovation isn't what separates success versus unsuccessful in the solar industry. It's business model innovation. And they've learned their lesson. When you look at the SunShop program today, it's focused more on financing and the soft costs around reducing the friction costs around permitting and engineering and that kind of stuff in solar. So the DOE has learned their lesson. It just, you know, unfortunately, they had to have Solyndra to learn it. Well, it's good to, to hear that they've learned their lesson and that, you know, you've uh, given us an example of, of the flip side of, of 
investing. I, I want to talk more about that a little bit um, and what the role of government should be uh, in terms of investing public dollars and creating the necessary arrangements for businesses like yours to succeed. But we've got to take a quick break. So when we come back, we'll touch on that. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. All round the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you happen to just be joining us, our guest today is Jigger Shaw. He is the founder of Sun Edison, which is awesome, a great company. Just check it out online. You have to see what they're doing. It's very innovative, and it's helping people who might not otherwise be able to afford or think they can afford to put solar up. Uh, to do so, and they've been wildly successful at helping people employ that technology. He's got a great new book out. It's called Creating Climate Change, Unlocking the Impact Economy, and you can check out a great website that has a lot of information about the book. It also has Jigger in a, in a cool video talking about the book and talking about the concepts of the book. If you go to www.creatingclimatewealth.com, Co. Co. Um, and so check that out. Maybe open a new tab in your web browser while you're listening to us on voiceamerica.com. And, uh, and I know that you'll enjoy checking out all the cool things that are part of that site. We're talking with Jigger about, um, government investment and, and what went wrong with the Solyndra model. Oftentimes when we hear politicians talk about clean energy, 
they're talking about funding research into new technologies. But as you said in the last segment, Jigger, you know, the technologies that we need in many respects are here and now. And so I'm wondering what you think, given that, what you think the role of government should be in order to help bring about the necessary investments in clean energy to significantly impact climate change? No, that's a great question. You know, I think we still have to invest in more R&D. Obviously, you know, we we don't know what we don't know, and so we really want to keep these scientists going to generate new knowledge. But for the technologies we already have ready to go, today we actually have $100 oil. And so I think it's the government's responsibility to figure out how we actually get um, the technologies that we have today out into the marketplace so that these technologies are actually um, these technologies are pervasive and can help solve the problem. So one of the things that the government's done is provide technology agnostic policy like the investment tax credit or the pulp production tax credit for wind, where they're not choosing winners and losers between a Solyndra or a First Solar. They're saying anyone who has a solar technology that will meet these tests will get access to this investment tax credit. So that's, I think, one thing that they can do is these technology agnostic policies. And you see that with electric vehicles today where the government says um, for the first 200,000 vehicles that every automaker will sell, you get a $7,500 tax credit. But once you hit 200,000, you no longer get uh, those tax credits or your customers don't um, because you should have at that point hit the economies of scale necessary to get your costs down to not need them. Um, so that's one big area the government can play a role in. I think the bigger area that we're not seeing government play in is just leadership around uh, where we're headed in this area, right? So, for instance, when you think about $100 oil, the president has basically said, we don't know what the hell we're doing in oil. There's nothing we can do. Oil goes up and down based on random things. You know, we have nothing that we can do about it. Well, that's simply not true. Oil and oil goes up and down because of demand and supply. So the government can put in higher cafe standards, corporate average fuel economy standards, which the president has done up to 54.5 miles per gallon by 2025. But the other thing that they can do is actually enable fuel choice. Uh, today, for instance, if you're a, a privately owned gas station and you want to add an ethanol pump or a methanol pump or a natural gas pump, you have to pay $100,000 just to get through the regulations at EPA to be able to do that. That's unnecessary regulation that they could solve, but you have to first give people, um, you know, give people hope and, and, and an aspirational goal by saying, look, we're going to make sure that every American can choose what fuel they want to use. They want to use natural gas, great. Ethanol, great. Diesel, gasoline, electricity, great. But this sort of monopoly that's just gasoline and diesel, that we're, we no longer think that that's consistent with where we want to go from a policy perspective at the U.S. government. And that's, I think, the responsibility of the government. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that, Jigger, because one of the things that I liked in your book, you made a great analogy. During the Eisenhower administration, there was a national roadmap. There was a plan um, to put together the infrastructure of what is now a very sophisticated and successful interstate highway system. We have no such plan for energy, and I think that in and of itself creates a lot of confusion and a lot of um, lost opportunity. And I don't know, you know, what your thoughts are on that, but I feel like that's a real, that's a real problem. 
It, it is a real problem. And so, you know, one of the things that I put forward in this book is uh, what I call the 100-100 plan, which is a, you know, sample plan that the governor, the government could adopt, which is basically taking all of the information from McKinsey, the International Energy Agency, the Department of Energy, and saying they've all basically said that we have to invest about $10 trillion uh, of infrastructure money from from bad stuff to good stuff. So from high carbon stuff to low carbon stuff, from things that use a lot of water from things to things that use a lot less water. And those represent solar, wind, you know, agriculture, uh, you know, the way we build our buildings, et cetera. And so what I've come up with is the 100-100 new economy plan. And that's 100,000 businesses that we need to sell $100 million worth of cost-effective solutions between now and 2020. Multiply that together and you get to $10 trillion of cost-effective technologies that can be deployed. And from, in my opinion, it's probably the only way you can get a material number of blue-collar workers back to work. Well, and I think that's pretty exciting. I mean, that's something that everybody's waiting for. You know, this promise of quote-unquote green jobs has been out there for years, and we just – you know, a lot of people are waiting for it to materialize. They're wondering how they can get involved. And it seems to be sort of a patchwork of, well, here's a grant here in this area. So we'll create, you know, 50 green jobs over here. And, you know, it's just not very um, ubiquitous. One of the reasons I think for that, again, goes back to a uh, uh, a bigger plan that we're all sort of waiting for, you know, there's going to require a lot of infrastructure um, upgrades and new infrastructure to support a clean energy economy. Um, and, you know, it'd be great to be able to find a map of exactly what that's going to look like, where the new transmission lines will be, where, you know, we're, we're going to be putting up distributed generation so that money and investments, whether it's, you know, government grants or not, even if it's private investment, money could be going there um, to start putting that in place. And although, you know, you, know, you talked about in your book um, how service companies have the edge in the infrastructure space, I think we're also going to need some hardware. But I would like for you to talk about that notion. When you say that, um, you know, service companies have an edge in the infrastructure space, what do you mean by that? Well, yeah, I think we have the technologies that we need to solve the problems you're talking about, whether it's outdated energy and water infrastructure, smart grid technology, distributed generation, or other things. We have those technologies that are cost-effective without new subsidies, um, and even in the declining subsidies realm, they're already cost-effective. So now the question is if GE and Siemens, maybe B, and also a lot of startup companies have the technology that's ready, what's preventing it from getting into the field? Right, and it's the service company bit that's missing. So I'll give you an example. If you're a city today and you have basically a fixed budget, it's not like your property taxes and things like that that you're collecting have gone up materially since 1999, but your fuel cost as a percentage of your overall budget has gone up by three to four X, right? So when it was a dollar a gallon for gasoline in 1999, you had a certain fuel budget. Today it's $4 a gallon for diesel and gasoline, and so you have a much larger fuel budget. Today, natural gas vehicles use fuel as the equivalent of a dollar sixty a gallon, equivalent to gasoline and diesel. And so it's cost-effective for them to move their entire vehicle fleet, and the technology already exists made by large automakers to, to, to make that switch. 
But all of I, these governments are feeling poor. So they're saying, look, I love you, Peterbilt or Bluebird Bus or, or Ford or Honda. That I know that you have these cars, but we can't afford to pay to prematurely convert our fleet. But there are service companies that will do that for you. They'll put up 100% of the money. They'll convert your entire fleet. They'll take all your old cars, sell them as used cars somewhere in the marketplace, and they'll immediately switch you to natural gas right now. And what you have to do is sign a 10-year contract with them to pay them a fixed fee, which is less than the savings that you're making every single month. And so on a net basis, you have a net savings to the government. And you can do that right now. Where do companies find out about this information? Because, you know, there's so many different organizations that, you know, I mean, companies really have to have a lot of patience in scouring around to find through this potpourri of different websites and, you know, all kinds of different organizations about how to create a more sustainable business in this way and that. Where can companies, is there a, is there a repository, a central repository of information to, to invest in programs like that to find those kind of service companies? Well, I mean, there's se- there's several of these uh, websites. One of them is the Carbon War Room. So the Carbon War Room deliberately doesn't work on policy, but in fact works on these roadmaps. And so they've created these roadmaps and then identified companies who participate in implementing these roadmaps. So, for instance, they're a partner. Uh, they've just completed a, uh, a a report on the amount of fuel that you can save in heavy trucks. And so they've partnered with a group called the North American Council for Freight Efficiency, which is the trade association that's working with all these technology companies to do this. And they've created case studies. They've shown examples. They have references, all of that. And that's on carbonwarroom.com. And so I would say that that's one of the best places to find cost-effective uh, technologies that are ready to scale. Um, but you're right. I mean, when you have 100,000 companies doing $100 million worth of business between now and 2020, it's it's going to be confusing. There's no way that everyone knows who these 100,000 companies are. But, mm-hmm. but what you need is a set of people uh, in the middle who are going to help folks get to the next level. And you can call them consultants, but I would much prefer to you know, call them business development folks, sales folks, marketing folks, um, commission sales agents. And it's important that they come from the local community because you can imagine if I go, even though I've been successful at Sun Edison, if I go to um, your hometown outside of St. Louis and I say to you, say to them, hey, you should make this conversion, they might say, wait, there's this guy coming in from New York. He's just trying to make money off of us. <laughs> but if the guy who is the head of the Rotary Club in your town said, look, no, I mean, we can do this, and I'm going to make a 3% commission actually helping to transition our own town over this way, you can imagine the mayor is probably more likely to go with that solution. Mm, love that. That's my mind just exploded at the thought of the ramifications of what you just said. That is so exciting. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but folks, don't go away. I mean, we have this great opportunity to tap into the brain share of Jigger Shaw, and I'm so excited. So don't go away. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? 
Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. And I'd like to give a big shout out to all my tweeps. If you're following me at, at Jill Buck, thank you so much. If you're not following me, do that thing because we have a good time. We talk a lot about what's going on on Go Green Radio and just green stuff in general. So follow me at, at Jill Buck. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Jigger Shaw. He is the founder of Sun Edison, which I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with if you're not. Google it. Great solar company. Huge, huge innovations going on in how they deliver solar into communities across the U.S. And he's got a great new book out called Creating Climate Wealth. Um, and I'm hoping that you all will check that book out because I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, Jigger, before we move on to some other um you know, discussion about business opportunities in climate change solution services. Um, I want to ask about your opinion about the oil and gas subsidies in the U.S. Sometimes when I talk to people who are in renewable energy, um, they get really ticked about it. And some say, you know what, we're competitive enough. It doesn't really matter. Um, what are your thoughts on the way that the government treats oil and gas? Well, look, I think it's, I'm probably in the latter camp. I think that Oil and gas subsidies have been made permanent, not only because they started back in the 1920s and 30s, but Ronald Reagan in the 1986 tax reform bill made oil and gas subsidies completely permanent. And so, you know, I think this is a great thing for Greenpeace and Sierra Club and a lot of other, you know, sort of moral outrage organizations to go after. But for those of us in the clean tech sector, we sort of have to live with what we got. And I think the solutions that we have are so amazing that we can actually compete with the current playing field. Well, I, that's great to hear. And actually, it's funny. I do hear that 
more often than not from people who are actually in the industry. You know, I watch so many different organizations, the Carbon War Room being one of my favorites. I also watch organizations like the UN Global Compact and the Global Reporting Initiative. And I want to get your opinion on this. I wonder how much influence they will have on the cre- on creating the conditions under which capital begins to flow more rapidly into climate change solutions. Do you think that this increase attention to corporate transparency, whether it's through these organizations or ultimately through the SEC, will actually begin to drive clean economy investment? Not directly, but it's very important because they're so valuable indirectly. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the real challenge that we have globally is, I mean, when, when I say $100 billion is going to solar this year, that's $100 billion of people money that that they think is cost-effectively deployed and financially compelling for their portfolios. Um, So Munich Re put $6 billion in. Wells Fargo is doing $500 million to a billion a year. You know, Citibank and Bank of America are now doing it. So these guys are doing it because it's a good financial decision. But when the UN and others are doing all this other work on the side, what happens is they open the minds of people whose minds are currently closed to these Mm -hmm. compelling financial opportunities. And so once, you know, I go in front of them and I pitch them a real deal at the Indianapolis airport or at the, uh, you know, Meadowlands or whatever it is I'm doing, and, you know, they look at it, they say, oh, this is a good business deal. And the reason they're open-minded enough to it is because they're part of these other global compacts. Gotcha. Or being influenced by them. I mean, there are some people who are going – being dragged, kicking and screaming to do the global reporting initiative. But I think ultimately you're exactly right. It will begin the search for um, ways to comply, things to report, and a lot of that might be investment in renewable energy and other climate change solutions. You know, Jigger, when I was reading your 100-100 plan, I was reading an article that you wrote, and there were two factoids that you put in the article that really just slapped me in the face. And the first one was that since 2000, electricity costs are up 50% and oil is up 500%. And the second factoid that just jumped off the page was that in the United States, 50% of all fresh water is used to cool thermoelectric power plants and frack wells for oil and gas drilling. Now, those, especially the second one, considering the huge national drought that we experienced, you know, last year and, and for many states even into the present time, um, that, that is pretty amazing. You know, you would think that all this water is going towards agriculture and drinking, but 50% of it is going to energy. I'd love for you to talk to our listeners um, about your 100-100 plan just a little bit more and explain why the facts like these ones that you included in the article create the perfect market timing for companies with climate change solutions. It's great. I mean, you know, look, in the late 90s, I did a lot of work with the Department of Energy with all of these uh you know, alternative fuels and alternative energy solutions, et cetera. And when they did their modeling back then, they found that most of these alternative fuels for cars would be cost-effective once gasoline doubled in price to $2 a gallon. Because back then it was a dollar a gallon, right? And so today, gasoline is persistently above $3 a gallon, and in most cases, $4 a gallon. And and so these solutions are ready today, right? And so the thing that is so amazing to me is that electricity costs have gone up by 50%, an average of 5% a year since 2000. 
and oil prices have gone up from 20 bucks a barrel in 1999 to over $100 a barrel today, so that's 500%. And so we're in this situation where all of these technologies that we proposed back in the 90s and said were cost-effective if, you know, the commodities that they displaced went up a little bit have now become cost-effective. Mm-hmm. And it's really the service businesses that aren't in place to get the solutions into the environment. So that's what we're working on in the 100-100 plan. And most of those 100,000 businesses are actually going to be service businesses that, uh, that, that take care of that missing mile for the technology providers that are ready to go. On the water side, you know, this is really a moral thing. You know, Scripps, which is one of the most respected research institutions out of the out of uh, the University of San Diego, um, uh, they have proposed the Colorado River is losing so much water. The mm-hmm. thermoelectric power plants, uh, which is like coal and and nuclear, um, and these fracking uh, water requirements for oil and gas, that Lake Mead, which feeds fresh water to Las Vegas will run out of water in the next 12 years, mm-hmm. right? That means that Las Vegas will cease to function as an urban center uh-huh. in 12 years, right? This is catastrophic. And the only way we're going to solve that problem is by shutting down all of the coal plants that are, that are taking water out of the Colorado River. And that's what you see happening. You know, I mean, the, the Public Service Commission in Colorado just shut down several coal plants. And that's what they're doing is they're doing it because they need to protect the water uh, resources feeding into the Colorado River. Well, and it is interesting, and, and we've talked about this on Go Green Radio before, the, the, in, the water intensity of various energy sources. And that's something we simply can't ignore. Besides the fact that, you know, the, the fuel is finite when you're talking about coal plants, you know, I mean, even if it lasts another 200 years, that's only 200 years, <laughs> you know. I mean, it's not forever, and, you know, we have to think about future generations, but it's also such a water-intensive, you know, technology that when we find ourselves competing between, you know, growing food with our water or, you know, turning on the lights with, you know, water-intense energy sources, we really have to make some important choices right now. I want you to go back, though, to talking to aspiring entrepreneurs for a second. And, you know, I'm sure that there are a lot of millennials that really want to participate in the impact economy. But you advise them in your book to pay attention to mainstream investing rules. Talk to them about what they need to know in order to attract real investment into their companies. It's so important. You know, I think that when you think about aspiring entrepreneurs and what we need for this 100-100 plan, what we need are people who care so deeply about their communities that they want to propagate these climate change solutions into their communities. So that's what we need. So we need people to go to their town and say, look, these technologies exist. Why won't you implement them? I don't want to pay higher property taxes. I instead want you to save money by switching to natural gas-based fuels or putting solar on um, your school rooftops. And that happens because people with persistence and desire go in and actually make that happen. And, you know, what I find is, is that we have no shortage of people on the persistence and the desire part, even though, you know, we can always use more. But what we have a problem with are folks who don't understand the rules of capitalism. 
And so they go into a place and they say, we want to put solar on the community food bank. The community food bank has less than $50,000 in the checking account, so not viewed as a high credit quality customer like a Walmart or a Costco might, might be. And so when the bank says, look, I love the community food bank, but it's going to cost them 14% interest instead of 8% interest because they're a higher credit score, you know, they, they just, they just don't have a good credit quality. Um, mm-hmm. people just get all outraged. And they say, well, I'm going to exit this process unless a foundation gives me really cheap money. And, and in the meantime, this poor community food bank has had 50% higher electricity costs every year, I mean, since 2000. And so they're actually providing less services to the public because electricity costs are actually eating away at a lot of their funding. And so right. they're the ones who desperately need to lock in their electricity rates for the next 20 years at a fixed price with a renewable energy source like solar. And so we get this issue where people get so fixated on the interest rates that they don't really think about the net payments. And so even at that 14% interest payment, the community food bank can still save 10 to 15% off of their current electricity bill, which is what they should be focusing on instead of the interest rates. And, and once you actually get momentum, once the community banks, once the local banks actually get excited about this technology, they've done five transactions, ten transactions, that interest rate's naturally going to come down from 14 to 8 just because people get more comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, people just check out of the process because they get so offended by the 14. <laughs> well, yeah, that you've got such a great – I mean, it sounds so simple. When you talk about the cost-benefit analysis this way um, – I just feel like again th- there needs to be that middle person not the consultant but maybe the <laughs> you know the the guide who's the middle person between these entities and the banks to help small organizations like a community food bank understand that you know I really found your chapter in the book on energy access incredibly eye-opening and my my heart was really heavy to to know that 1.6 billion people have no electricity and when you let yourself kind of use your imagination a little bit it's pretty easy to imagine the difficulties that these people are facing with everything from sanitation to you know just basic comforts that we take for granted and there's a tremendous inequity between their standard of living and ours simply because they don't even have access to electricity. For entrepreneurs who want to tackle this issue and are passionate about, you know, leveling the playing field a little bit for these folks who don't even have access to energy, what advice can you give them on finding the necessary capital to to get started, but then uh, down the road, protecting their investors from some of the risks that are associated with projects that would address this issue? It's a great question. And I think you should start with first principles, which is this is one of the largest wealth creation opportunities on the planet, right? These poor people who don't have energy um, in, in the form of modern forms of electricity still have energy. They collect firewood, they deforest to their communities, to, you know, burn wood to cook their food, right? Um, Two million women a year die from smoke inhalation Mm -hmm. um, poisoning from doing that. So there's a health uh, impact here too. But they're paying on average over $1.50 a kilowatt hour for this (laughs) power. And solar can provide power to them at less than 25 cents a kilowatt hour. So we can save them a boatload of money and make financially compelling rates of return 
for investors. And so I think that's the first thing is that, yes, we're doing good in the world by helping these people, but it's also one of the largest wealth creation opportunities on the planet to help these people. And so I don't think we should be looking at this from a nonprofit point of view. We should be looking at this like we did mobile phones, which is, you know, there are a lot of people who made a billion dollars in wealth for themselves by providing uh, mobile phones to people in India, people in East Africa, people in South Africa, where before mobile phones, less than 20 people per thousand had phone access in Africa. Mm-hmm. Right today, they have the ability to actually check which farmer, which market to sell their crops in so they're not getting screwed by one person. Well, and what was interesting about that model, too, that was really creative and innovative at the time was that it allowed these people who were receiving the mobile phones to leapfrog over technology that would have been incredibly burdensome. They didn't ever experience landlines and hence never had to invest in all the infrastructure that would support landlines. And you know, similarly with energy, rather than perhaps investing in a lot of old transmission and distribution lines, perhaps they can leapfrog right over that into distributed generation energy models and take advantage of local solar, or local wind or other energy technologies that, um, you know, that would be clean, but also relieve their government of the burden of putting in a lot of costly infrastructure as well. No, I couldn't have said it better myself. I mean, not only are we actually solving a problem the governments have failed to solve for over 30 years, but we can do it far cheaper than using your grandfather's technology. You know, piggybacking on that thought, one of the things that you said in your book that's so simple but so powerful is that all climate change solutions are local. And so often when people think about tackling this huge problem of of climate change, we think, well, we've got to put in these massive solar or wind farms um, because that's the only way we're going to tackle a problem that's this big. But maybe that's only part of the picture. I'd love for you to expand and explain, you know, on your thinking for the benefit of our listeners that all climate change solutions are local and what that means to entrepreneurs? Well, that's a great question. You know, we in the solar industry will do about $100 billion of business this year. And the average system in the solar industry will be less than $500,000 per system. Wow. When When I say that to people, they can't even wrap their brain around it. It's just so extraordinary. Right, so a hundred billion dollars means that 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 we're going to have to do probably over a million to two million projects to be able to reach our goal by 2020, right? And and so that's a huge number, and there's just no way for one company like GE or Siemens or whatever else to pay for all of this infrastructure, you know, worldwide. And so you're going to need local community organizations. Think about your roofing company. There's not a single roofing company in the United States that has more than 3% market share in the United States. Right. The vast majority of roofing companies are just purely local. They're members of the Rotary Club. You hire them not because they're the cheapest, but because you know where they live. And if your roof leaks, <laughs> you can actually go out and get them. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, and that's how this is going to work. It's going to be there's, – there's only 25,000 cities and towns in the United States. That's it. And we're going to have one of these climate change solutions companies in every single town. 
And then obviously in certain cities, you'll have 50 or 100. And that's why we're going to need 100,000 businesses selling $100 million worth of stuff between now and 2020. And it's all going to happen locally. That's so exciting. I mean, it almost makes me giddy to think about the opportunities that are available. I mean, when you look at, you know, the millennials right now and their disproportionate rate of unemployment, much higher than other demographics in our society, this is the message they need to hear. This is so exciting. And yet, one of my fears is that our educational systems are not keeping up with these opportunities and preparing, uh, you know, the, the workforce of tomorrow to even consider, um, being the ones who lead this revolution. You know, you studied at the University of Illinois, which I did too, and I loved it, but, um, you studied engineering and that was not your primary academic passion. You had to kind of fit your passion into a pre-existing major that may or may not have, you know, been what you really wanted to study. Do you, think that our universities are doing an adequate job of crafting majors and fields of studies that will produce enough entrepreneurs to meet the need of this $10 trillion impact economy? Well, you know, I'd say it slightly differently. I think I speak at college campuses a lot. And, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm, for instance, October 28th, I'm in Ann Arbor. October 29th, I'm in Boulder. October 30th, I'm in San Francisco speaking to hundreds of students. Um, and these students, by and large, nobody wants to start a 30-year career in the oil and gas industry. They all want to start a 30-year career in our industry. So we've already got them. Now the question becomes, what do we do with them, right? We've already got their interest. What do we yeah. do with them? How do we get them a job? And I think one of the things that I learned in my transition from engineering to business is that it, it, it takes everyone. Right. I mean, this notion that engineers and software coders are superior to people who do PR and marketing is ridiculous. Um, you know, one of the big things that Solar City needs right now is PR. Right. They actually have to figure out how to get over, you know, 10 million U.S. households to know about solar, actually understand solar and call them up to get it. Right. And that's not an engineer who's an expert at that. That's marketing and PR. Those are right. grassroots organizers, right? These are people who actually take their God-given talents, whatever it is, whether it's in the arts, whether it's in English, whether it's in engineering or science, and actually figure out how they can contribute to the process and how they can contribute to making this happen. You know, when you think about the world's best ways of educating and communicating to people, it doesn't come from, you know, a Spock-like focus on logic, Right. It comes from, you know, plays and art and music and, you know, literature and magazines and all of these other forms of communication. It, those are far more superior than me giving a lecture um, on the merits of solar. You know, I love the way that you put this because the the underlying message is it takes all of us and all of our skills. I mean, it's a, it's an all-hands operation, and that's a fantastic message to end the show with. Thank you so much for joining us, Jigger. Folks, get out. Find his book, Creating Climate Wealth. It's, it's an amazing read. It's for everyone, not just uh, engineers, like he said. So thank you so much for joining us, and thanks to our listeners for joining us on Go Green Radio, um, this wonderful Friday morning, afternoon for some of you. We're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. So until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green.
you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.